Welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. The whole record was recorded with all the overdubs, all the times coming back down, and mixed in 50 hours. Here to introduce you to the great musicians and music businesses and organizations of Wisconsin. Every week, Wisconsin Music Podcast will be bringing you great information on what's happening in the Wisconsin music world. For our music-loving listeners, we'll bring you music that you haven't even heard of yet from unique and talented artists and hear about their journey so far. You'll either hear live performances of their songs or songs from their selected discography. For our musicians out there wondering what they can do to further their recognition, we'll be calling upon Wisconsin music businesses and organizations to enlighten you on what they're doing to help further your music journey. And now, here's your host, Zach Fell. Thanks, Dean. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Wisconsin Music Podcast, brought to you by Diamond Dave Photography, the photography that supports local music in Wisconsin and is ready to work with your band or any solo artist on your next promo pictures or band show. To contact Diamond Dave and see previous work, check out Diamond Dave Photography on Facebook and Instagram. Wisconsin Music Podcast is also brought to you by ZTF Studio. ZTF Studio, recording and mixing services, specializing in singles, demos, EPs, and LP projects for the last 20 years in southeastern Wisconsin, doing jazz, rock, funk, country, indie, and more. ZTF Studio brings success to your recording project. A few testimonies, one from Dimitri Wolf saying, It sounds very clear. He's also one of the more professional mixing engineers I've had contact with. Very efficient and mixed vision driven. This week we talked to veteran Milwaukee musician, producer, engineer, Gary Tannen, with a career spanning decades and reflecting two central themes, music and technology. A little bit about Gary. At age 16, he had already laid the foundation for his calling, he says, when landed a record deal with Odessa Records, recording his original material. While attending the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the early 70s, he apprenticed as an audio engineer at ARCO, A-R-C-O, recording studios where he studied the art and science of audio recording and production. Gary has produced for bands like Bodine's, Monovox, and mastered for the likes of ex-Violent Femmes drummer Victor DeLorenzo and... Daryl Strummer of Phil Collins and Genesis fame. Tannen has won the Wisconsin area music industry, Whammy, Producer of the Year Awards for 03, 04, 05, and 2010. He was an active past member of the Audio Engineer Society, AES, and is a 25-year voting member of the Recording Academy, NARAS, NARAS, and owns GT Lab Daystorm Music Production and Disc Mastering in Milwaukee. That is a lot, and Gary has done a lot. So let's hear some of that from the man himself. Gary Tannen, thank you so much for being on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Much appreciated. How are you today? I am very well. I just got done in the intro telling everybody some of the information that's in your bio. But let's start with your music origin story. Why don't you give us the background of you getting to where you are today? Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me, Zach. I'm glad that we were able to make this work so early on in the history of Wisconsin Music Podcast, because I think your idea of premiering and highlighting the work of local musicians is very important. You know, my musical history, I started early in my uh, upbringing, having a desire to do something with music as early as prior to kindergarten. I, uh, I remember 
being drawn to things that were musical, and my father had a shortwave radio. I remember that. Now, I'm not sure when he actually got that, but I, I, was, uh, I was enthralled with listening to international broadcasts and the variety of music. But uh, early on, I, I, I took piano lessons when I was in grade school, and I remember we didn't have a piano, so I had to go to the school prior to classes to actually practice in the auditorium and it was <laughs> empty and I was a little kid sitting there and playing and I remember my parents are immigrants from Ukraine and so my first language is actually Ukrainian. Uh, my parents didn't, didn't speak English that well, certainly when I was born, my first language was Ukrainian. So when I went to grade school, at first I didn't understand English. And then in first grade, uh, you know, it's kind of broken, right? I loved music already. Uh, I took these classes. I really didn't understand what the teacher was saying. T honest to God, truth. By looking at these uh, black dots on a, on, you know, that they were trying to explain, I, I didn't get it. And so what I did, though, was I would remember what the musical passages were, and I'd go and try to recreate them by ear. So I, that was my earliest upbringing. It was kind of like forced into paying attention to what was actually being done sonically by ear, which turned out to be very beneficial given what I ended up doing. That was the beginning. Uh, I took those classes for a while, and then we didn't have a piano until my sister started taking piano lessons, and then we finally got one. And that was around the time I was in junior high. So with the Beatles and, and the whole revolution going on, I, of course, uh, started a band, actually played in a band when I was like 13, 14 years old, had the opportunity to go into a recording studio based on my research of looking in the yellow pages and actually finding one and going down and making a pitch. And we got in, and ultimately that ended up with a, a record that we had out uh, while I was in high school with the band Medius that had a single that was pressed by RCA Records and had some distribution. Like all these stories, or many of them, uh, we ended up breaking up after that single, but but I continued on. So I don't. Uh, the other guys were musicians that ended up having careers as well. But the band split apart. The drummer became a preacher. The guitar player started a disco cover band that was in the seventies, and then um, I went on to actually start a career in the business. I started actually working for a recording studio the first time in 1970 when I graduated from high school, a place called Arco Artist Releasing Corporation. You know, so I cut my teeth the way anybody would cut their teeth in the recording business is actually apprenticing in a studio uh, and working with uh, symphony players and setting up microphones and editing tape, all of that. So I was really fortunate to be around during that time, which was exploding technologically and the traditional method 
of getting into this business, which was nowhere near as accessible as it is today. That's how we all learned. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it, but this is the way, this is the one thing that is so, so sadly lacking with generations of musicians that only pick up their technology via a laptop is that there's no context. I think one of the sad things that I notice about people that I end up working with is that there is, there's no depth to the understanding of what it is that we're supposed to be doing in this business. So needless to say, I went on working in the business one way or another and ended up having a record out in the mid seventies under the title of auto and the elevators, which ended up getting some notice in the Midwest. I was added to radio stations around the Southeast Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Minnesota and Iowa that had the traditional kind of ad to radio stations where you got played five and six times a day and had some very positive press exposure, so on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> that, that success during that time completely changed my desire to continue. It was something that was kind of the culmination of all those years of having the technological background, having been in the studio business early on as, as a 15, 16 year old and, and, and was really a powerful way for me to have experienced all of that stuff and kind of pushed me towards continuing to do what I've continued to do most of my adult life here, which is produce, engineer, play. Excellent. Let's start with Auto and the Elevators. Why don't you kind of talk us through that whole recording from beginning to end? Auto and the Elevators, because this was 1973 when that was recorded. When I describe what we did, uh, most people's mouths are open. They read about this stuff in books, but, but it's like, you know, it just seems so distant, a uh, uh, universe away. Uh, my, my experience that completely changed me was I had the studio background. So I, I knew we did commercials at Arco. We did a whole slew of them. I still have a demo here of, of the commercials that we did. Channel 4, Follow the Leaders, Boston Store. They did everything that you would expect in a local environment. Most of that work was being done here or Chicago at Arco, or it was being done in Chicago. So we really had the whole breadth of everything that you do in a studio, including recording records. So I had that insight. I, I understood what arrangement was. I understood the ideas and the concepts. And when it came to doing my record, I understood what areas I needed uh, to suss out and, and provide experts in. For example, we had an arranger Ed Assley, who was actually working at UWM at the time at the School of Music, teaching arrangement, was originally from CBC Canada. He came down and actually directed 
the sessions for for the strings. So so we had four string players, uh, including the founding director of the Kronos Quartet, which was and still is internationally famous avant-garde classical quartet. The quality of playing was top-notch. We had string players. The material that was recorded was was all rehearsed. So we were playing as a band. It wasn't just four musicians or five, whatever. We played as a band all the material on that record for a whole summer because studio time was $50 an hour in 1973. That's a lot of money. So we had to be efficient. And it wasn't a question of not being efficient. That's what everybody did. Our session players at Arco came in and did, uh, they had a three-hour minimum session. So, so he, you know, you ended up paying union rate. So you got the most you could out of these players for three hours. And we ended up getting incredible amounts of work out of them. You had arrangements, you put them in front of them. Uh, we had a four-track machine. Things got done. So that was, that was it, it wasn't even a work ethic. It was, just, you couldn't do it any other way. We didn't have any way to to re-record yeah. things. So Auto and the Elevators was recorded on an eight-track, one-inch machine, which had lousy punch-in. I remember that. So, I mean, my vocals were full takes. We had to watch what tracks we left open. So we had to uh, design the way the record was being recorded so we had free tracks open at the end. It was a juggling game. We finished that record which had four horns, four string players doubled in parts. That was uh, a separate session. All these people had to be transported down to Libertyville, Illinois, because that's where we recorded it. And the rhythm session uh, for all the tracks, which was 10 tracks, was from the moment we came in to set up to when we broke down and left was done in 10 hours. Wow. We wouldn't have been able to do it any other way. Do you get what I'm saying? I wouldn't have been able to afford it. The whole record was recorded with all the overdubs, all the times coming back down, and mixed in 50 hours. Wow. That's almost unheard of nowadays. Nobody would do that because they don't have to do it. The only time that would change is if somebody really wants to go in and record a live record, which is what this was. Yeah. (laughs) Four musicians in the room at the same time. You're not going to be overdubbing your parts. We're going for keeper tracks. So what we did was we recorded three takes, and then we bested those three takes. We kept re-recording over them until the producer said, okay, we got it, and the engineer agreed. So then we had at least one keeper and two backups that was pretty common. And and when I talk about that today, people don't have any concept of that. It's because you need players that are accomplished enough to be able to take that a 10-hour session with one break for lunch okay. and be able to record 10 pieces of music to the point of a finished master level, meaning... You know, whatever punch-ins or fix... Well, there weren't punch-ins, really. I mean, we might have punched in a whole bass track, yeah. but 
we didn't do that. It was like we went for a complete cohesive performance. And it was like you didn't think about doing anything other than that because you couldn't. How many tracks was it? Eight tracks. I mean, it was mono drums. It was a single track for drums. We had stereo strings, meaning we had to use two tracks for four and four in order to get a stereo field. So that was right. two tracks gone. Bass, drums, single tracks, keyboard, single track. Stereoize the uh, Leslie later if you can, and and you needed vocals and you needed horns, <laughs> you you know. So those tracks disappeared quick. Yeah, I mean you had a pre-plan and it was a challenge because this was a concept record. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would be a an example of a really obvious concept record. Yeah, I mean you had a pre-plan and and pre-produce and all that other stuff before you even hit record. I challenge anybody to go and listen to that record and tell me that it is anything other than the most phenomenal sounding drums. And and they sounded great on the radio. These these were singles, you know. I mean, you, you listen to it on an AM or an FM radio in mono, and that record... It had to compete with McCartney's Wings was out at the time. I mean, it was played right along with everything else, and if it would have sounded at all not like that, it would have never been added to a playlist. But the words I say are gone 
The challenge was not that you didn't have enough tracks. The challenge was having an engineer that knew how to mic the drums and get a great sounding track. And all of this is is a moot point if we didn't have the quality of musicians. The bass player was the first chair symphony bassist, Dave Phillips. Danny Schmidt was one of the most incredible drummers. I haven't worked with anybody quite like him in all of my career. Incredible. And he was 19 years old at the time. And I was only 20, so, I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't so strange. Uh, Dave Phillips was in his 40s. I knew him from uh, Arco. Uh, Jeff Eaton, the keyboard player, organ player, and Willie Pianchi were in a band that was uh, playing Yes. So they certainly had the chops, right? If you're playing Yes every night, and you're you're playing that level of complexity, uh, keyboard wise and guitar wise. They were great players. What techniques from that session have you carried on through the rest of your career that just makes a big difference in what you do? I would say that the the biggest influences have been the work ethic, the approach to professionalism, techniques that I've learned two mentors, Elmo Griffin, who was the first producer that I ever worked with, a black gentleman from what we call the inner city in Milwaukee who ran a label called Odessa that had the first recording studio I worked for. I learned, I learned incredible passion and mentorship from him and understanding how ultimately important that is generationally for keeping music alive. And then secondly, Ed Sokol, who <laughs> was a difficult guy, 
but really truly a genius who taught me uh, listening skills and ideas about which microphones were best for what purposes, how great the Neumanns were, the RCA BK-77s, the ribbon mics, and how he would use them differently. And, and he mic'd up some of my sessions for my first solo record, which was before Auto and the Elevators. So I watched him mic up a grand piano and why that was done. And then the first LA-1, LA-2 that I got to see working was something that he had modified. And he told us the Tektronics was, was the magic behind the radio stations that managed to to get such great ratings because their voices sounded better than everybody else. And that was the magic, was that that LA-2. And then he modified it with a different attack ratio for, for use in singing vocals. So I, I learned from people who were passionate, and that resonated with me, that passion and love. I mean, of course, they always wanted to make money, but, you know, that first producer, he was putting money in. I doubt that he ever saw a lot of money back, but he was passionate about the importance of music and the importance culturally of carrying this on. So I think you're probably more uh, interested in the technical stuff that I learned, but honestly, you can get technology anywhere, uh, there are some techniques, obviously, that I've that I've learned that that maybe uh, people don't much use anymore. But it's that I, I can't replace that passion. I, I you know you passion doesn't come as a plug-in. No, definitely not. And I know you with your background in uh, music education could speak volumes on the importance of what I'm talking about. I'm sure is like well what. You, you want to come into class and you want to become uh, Dizzy Gillespie overnight? It's no. not going to happen. And if you don't have the passion to actually continue, it's hard work to get, to yeah. get, to get better, right? It's doable, yes. but that part of it, okay, the, the educational part or learning, if, you know, learning under those kind of mentors – would have meant nothing if I didn't value what they had, right? If I didn't recognize how utterly exactly. important it was for me to, to do everything I could to learn from them, then I wouldn't have that knowledge. I would, I would blow it off. So yeah, I, I'm not going to take credit for having this passion because I don't think I could recreate it in anybody else. You could nurture it. And so I'm not going to take credit for for having the gift of being able to be passionate, but I will take credit for for the slugging through the drudgery of continual work, which I love. But it, hey, look, it's it's a lift, you know, to get better. So those people that taught me those things back there, you know, it's my job to try to recall those things to give them value. Because if they don't have value to me, why would I remember them? There would be no legacy if I didn't value it enough to remember all the details of this. So things like using a microphone, which we did at that first studio, uh, was a carpet uh, store originally, which was great because you had 
pieces of carpeting. They had the old studio white soundproofing uh, acoustic stuff with uh, the holes in it, you know, that you saw in all the traditional 60s, 50s, and 40s studios. But we had no reverb. You couldn't afford an EMT. I don't even think, I don't know when the EMT actually came out. Uh, They wouldn't have been able to afford it. But they had something that Capitol Studios also had, which is a microphone and a speaker down this uh, set of stairs into the basement that was really long. And you could move the microphone relative to the, to the speaker for for the amount <laughs> for the amount of uh delay but it, it it sounded great i mean it was acoustically perfect right right so there's things like that that had to be done because there was no other way to do it it was like uh the mother of all invention right, right. those are the things that I, I i feel end up getting lost because we don't challenge ourselves with being able to do that because it's Hey, it's all available as a plugin. Yeah. Yeah, you get you kind of get in your own head and your own little world and you're not really, you know, seeking out different ways of accomplishing something except for what's already inside your computer. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not trying to derogate technology, although it kind of sounds like I am. I love it. I, I couldn't do what I do without it. But I came at it with the knowledge of how it was done initially. If you come at it with the knowledge of not how it's done, that could make for interesting stuff because you have no preconceptions. And I've heard things that people do that are incredible. But I argue that those people would be incredible if they had to do it the old way. So it's not fair to say just because some people can do incredible things that are not traditional in the way that they route their effects without any knowledge of how it's supposed to be done. But those, those people are rare. It's usually stuff that's done that is badly you know, put together that you say, you know, you re- it really would do well if you understood the basics. Les Paul would have been Les Paul if he was born today. Or if he was born back then to invent the uh, first multi-track because he had the need to do it. Right. I mean, if if he didn't do it, someone else would have eventually. Sure. If Les Paul was born today, he'd be, he'd be adding on to the technology that we currently right. have. Right. That's what I was going to say. Right. Without knowing some kind of knowledge, you're going to have a lot more struggles until you figure everything else out. But that's the way, you know, I think most people learn anyways is just that they fail and then they build up on that failure to get closer to that success they're looking for. Hopefully. Hopefully yeah. they don't blame it on the technology and say, well, that just that doesn't work. And um, I, to me, it comes back to wishing desperately that we don't lose the passion. And if you get a, get a chance uh, to allow me to, to speak to what I'm doing about that, you know, currently at the end of the uh, podcast, I'd appreciate it. Oh, definitely. The old adage that a bad craftsman blames it on his tools. Oftentimes people would ask me, what do you think about this particular tool or that particular tool? And I would just say, you know what? The size and structure, the finish of a hammer doesn't matter if you can't use it to drive a nail. 
And and I've watched craftsmen use nothing and do things that I I only envision in a dream that I'd be able to do. So I think that's that's a great way to to talk about this as the craft of the art form as being potentially lost. If you can go to IKEA and convince yourself that that's the same as a hand-built craftsman desk. Functionally, it works for you, and that's all you care about, and there is no aesthetic difference. Okay, but I fear that something's lost with making the equivalency between IKEA furniture and something that was done by a craftsman. Yeah. And, you know, in today's day, you know, you can go to an artesian and, get it all hand built and spend a lot of money on it. Or like you said, you can go to Walmart or Ikea or target and spend a lot less, but if it's functional and it works for you, I guess for that small amount of time that you're using it, it works for you. Right. It does except, you know, and this comes back to the, the bigger question, which is the kinds of things that guys like you and I ought to be thinking about is like, what does that really mean? Yeah. Does it mean that everything is a matter of functionality and and a throwaway? Or does it mean that somebody's not doing the job of enlisting the next generation to understand the value of those things? I'm not going to blame the technologically rich environment that we're in and people growing up with cell phones as a a paddle in their uh, baby crib. I'm not going to blame that. What I'm going to blame is the generation of us that know better for not coming up with a way to communicate the importance of that, the the values that we think are are really important. Those of us that that know there's a difference or are 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 strongly making sure that people understand the difference between piece of IKEA furniture and something that's built by a craftsman. We have to come up with a way to instill that value of the craft to a new generation. That's our responsibility. It's not it's not the failure on the part of a generation that grew up with a cell phone their whole lives since they were in a baby crib. I, I it's not their fault if we can't communicate how important the values that we have, that they should be important to them, uh, you know, that's got to be, that's our responsibility. Yeah, we have, you know, as the previous generations, we have to teach the next generation that there is a responsibility that comes with any new technology. And there's a, you know, there's a right way to use it. And there's a probably a wrong way to use it. You just have to Make sure that you're using it the way it's hopefully meant to be used instead of a crutch and just use it for everything. Certainly when it comes to art. When it comes to art, right? being able to doodle on a screen is not the same thing as Picasso. No. And, and it shouldn't be equated as the same. Why? Because then there's no value for Picasso. We, we continue to have an intrinsic value assigned to... to to great artists. You can't blame a person who doesn't know any better that doodling on a iPad screen is it looks like Van Gogh if they don't know about the difference. 
And if we don't teach them the difference and we just get upset about the fact that, oh, yeah, those young kids think that's art, then, then that falls, that responsibility falls on us. Right. I mean, if you have, like you were talking about earlier, passion, if you have a passion for some, for some whatever art form you're, you have a passion for, it's always good to go back and see what was done in the past and then use those techniques and mix that in with what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. It's having the desire to go deeper, right? And, and right. to actually respect the history of something. That doesn't mean you have to necessarily like it, you know, but respecting something doesn't mean you like it or don't like it. It's having the respect of value to understand something. You could even say when it comes, when it comes to anything, it, it's better to know your enemy than to not know your enemy. If that's your intent to say, I hate classical music because of what? Well, you better know what you're talking about because uh, they, 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 they hit your fingers and make you practice 10 hours a day. Okay, now that makes sense. But don't just tell me you hate it without underscoring the reason that you dislike something. Right. Have some substance behind what you're, you're stating. I think all those things are the unfortunate result of a Google culture. I don't have to remember things. I just ask Google. Google knows. Some of that is uh, technology, but again, it's not technology's fault. I if you want to blame anybody, it's, it's those of us that know that difference and don't pass that on to the new generation. With, you know, with Google, if, if you go down a rabbit hole or if you do some in-depth research on a topic, that's different than just reading a headline on Google going, oh, well then... If that's what the headline says, then I guess that's either right or wrong. What's going to be the headline, uh, Zach, if I put in vocal compression? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's going to be whatever the latest plugin is, and you're going to go, oh, great, download that and click, and here's the setting for a rock vocal. That's one way of, pro uh, of approaching things, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's certainly not knowing what compression right was intended for maybe you get a sense of it by just using the item whatever but that's a far cry from the knowledge of of proper use and all that and and not everybody needs to know that like you said you know not everybody needs to go that in depth my my fear is the equivalency idea is everything equally of value every production every creative effort is that all the same as Van Gogh? Well, no. And uh, that, if you don't know that difference, then it's really hard to evaluate that there is a difference. I guess we're getting pretty philosophical here, but it, it's important when it comes to what is it that, that makes art anything at all, you know, of value. I just I think it also depends on the person. Like you're, you know, go back to the pa passion thing. If you have a passion for something, I think intuitively you're gonna research and try to figure everything out as much as you can about what you're passionate about. And if you don't have a passion for it, then maybe you're doing you're in the wrong situation. You should be finding something else to do, maybe. And I'm sure you know you have examples in in your uh, educational model that that would. Uh, that would easily uh, work 
as an example. Again, I, I go back to the idea that many of us that have been, for example, myself and others who've been in this business for some period of time that came through the era that I, you originally started asking me about how I got started in the first studio projects I did, that really that education, relaying that passion for what was there and is there and how important some of those values are, that that that's not the job of a generation that doesn't know any better. It's our job to find a way to express that and teach that. You know, we, we're all teachers. Yeah, I mean, I have certain students that have a higher passion for music than other ones in the class. I mean, they all like being in, you know, band or beginning guitar class or jazz ensemble or, you know, whatever. But, you know, just some have a little bit, you know, stronger passion for it than others. Others just there to do it for high school and other ones are there to do it so they can pursue it in college and, you know, beyond. So what that's what's kind of nice about my my position at, at the high school is that I tell them that. I say, listen, you don't have to become a professional musician, but you have to have enough passion in here to be successful and help the group be successful. Not everybody's going to be a virtuoso. You know, not everybody's going to be, you know, that's not going to be their life goal. But, you know, as long as you have, you know, you love to play, you know, you can play an instrument until, until your body doesn't let you do it anymore. Exactly. And, and for a lot of people, that might be a heck of a long time, longer than they can even walk. You know, so so that's that's the great right. news. And I, I also, I remember, <laughs> I remember somebody saying, hey, you might as well become a vocalist because when you're 70 years old, you might not look that good, but heck, <laughs> you can still sing. That's true. That's true. So let's kind of go back to the early 70s. After you got done with auto in the elevators and you started getting airplay what kind of happened after that after that period of time there was a single that came out in 1976 that built on that success and uh there was a period of time in uh, 76 77 that i got disillusioned with if you think back to that period of time there was a great big change that happened with disco coming in. Um, there was also the early punk rock that was kind of like, uh, I would say, in opposition to the direction of the very polished, you know, corporate rock. And then disco became this huge market share. The clubs that used to have uh, Mother's Nightclub beneath the street, the attic, Attic West, all of a sudden, uh, took on the the whole rage of of discotech and they bought they turned their sound system <laughs> into a dance floor and got turntables and they the light went on in their heads i'm sure it's like we don't have to work with we don't have to deal with musicians we just play this stuff that's recorded and people get drunk and spend their money and and that that was very depressing to me uh, I did have a studio that I tried to run for a while in 77 through 79 that wasn't really all that successful that was built out of my house. Worked with song singer-songwriters and did lots of uh, original recording, but it, it really didn't 
didn't make enough money to, to sustain me. I went to work for a defense contractor in 1979 because they were desperately looking for people that had any electronics background. And again, luckily for me, having worked with my mentor, Ed Sokol, who had, <laughs> who had also mentored me in electronics and said, uh, listen, kid, you ought to be paying attention to digital. And he taught me about digital gates, AND gates, OR gates, uh, and, and the like for use in computers. Well, when I went to work for astronautics, there was a technical test for the techs that they were uh, hiring. And if you had any snippet of digital knowledge, boom, they put you on this new program, which included education, which included really just an incredible opportunity to work on what was called the standard remote terminal, which was a computer that ended up going in every military base that the United States had throughout the world. And we had the contract, astronautics had the contract for that. I went to work for them and moved up the ladder because I was equally creative electronically <laughs> as, as I was musically. So I was, instead of writing songs, now I was making circuits. So I went to work for the industrial engineering group and became an industrial engineer by the time I left there, working there for about 10 years. And by that time, 1990, during that period of time in the 80s, there was a great big explosion in uh, musical instrument digital interface, which is MIDI, and the ability for personal computers. I became a programmer and, and, and worked on personal computer type software. Uh, it was, it was incredibly fertile time for anyone who was a musician to think about music because now you could record a musical performance using a computer and a keyboard. So I wrote for a magazine called the Computer Musicians Coalition during the 80s while I was still working at Astronautics, and I was just incredibly enthralled with the direction, synthesizers, the direction things were going. And that's what I did during the 80s. I, I, I did produce a few records. Uh, I had a single out while I was at Astronautics that I recorded and worked on a jazz record. Uh, so I was continuing to work, passionate about the synthesizer revolution with MIDI software and sequencers, which were you know pieces of software that let you record those performances. I ended up leaving after about 10 years and went back into some consulting using computers and music. So I would set up some studios with that exact setup that was right prior to digital recording, but very early, you know, early sound designer software, which was what we ended up using for mastering. That was like early, um, early 90s. And I did some of that kind of stuff working for Uncle Bob's Music Center, which was a place I worked for uh, after I left astronautics. And then I, I've been doing mastering and uh, record production ever since then. After I left astronautics, gave me the opportunity to go back into this full time. And we've been very fortunate because, you know, I, I know how difficult it's been for anybody to do 
this for a living. Most of us have to have multiple jobs just to sustain a reasonable kind of existence. And and I applaud all of those people that continue to do that because that's basically what you have to do. But I've been so fortunate. This is what I've done since 1990, full-time. Diamond Dave Photography, the photography that supports local music in Wisconsin, is ready to work with your band or any solo artist on your next promo pictures or band show. To contact Diamond Dave and see previous work, check out Diamond Dave Photography on Facebook and Instagram. Wisconsin Music Podcast is also brought to you by ZTF Studio. ZTF Studio, recording and mixing services, specializing in singles, demos, EPs, and LP projects for the last 20 years in southeastern Wisconsin, doing jazz, rock, funk, country, indie, and more. ZTF Studio brings success to your recording project. All right, back to the interview. That kind of leads you into being now a producer, right? I was a producer from the very first record that we did. It just wasn't that I got that title, but it was the role that I was put into. And I was the producer of Auto in the Elevators, and I uh, produced my first solo record. And I've produced other records. I have had other records out. Sublime Nation, I forgot to talk about, which was out in 1995. Uh, A really cool project that was completely done digitally. And uh, that was very early in using ADATs ADAT just came out in 
I've worked on projects that were kind of revolutionary that way. When a change happened in the business, I tried to jump on it, see what I could do that was unique with that. I also worked internationally with artist Toshi Hiraoka in Japan on an international record, Expensive Dogs, that was done by transferring files. i 
so it was, again, it was technological kind of stuff, transferring files over the Internet, which was not the Internet that we know of now, right? It's talking, I mean, transferring files in uh, with an email and a, and a download. And I forget how we did that. Um, I guess we learned, we caught up on a bulletin board service. So I was always, you know, this technology guy that loved to see how technology could improve the art form. So I've been a producer ever since my very first record back in 69. Cause I remember when I started my studio back in like early two thousands, you, I had that two inch machine and you always came down and helped me figure out how to make adjustments and make, you know, fix it because it was always breaking down. So yeah, right. That was that's that's the beauty of uh, analog technology. Yes. So so my background in electronics has served me well. Like I say, I that started out actually with me in my early teens, having become a ham radio operator, and I had a love for electronics in parallel with my love for music. I was self-taught, but yeah. I did run the service department at Uncle Bob's Music Center from nineteen. 19- 69 to 77 and then my brother took it over and then uh the kind of work you're talking about is uh, maintenance work on multi-tracks yeah well you know we had to do that (laughs) in the studios Uh, i think my first time i was a tech support person was when i worked at arco artist releasing corporation i was doing maintenance then as well so I, I had a chance to really, yeah, really get into that side of things. And, and basically, honestly, the engineer, wherever he was at a studio, had to know enough to, to set up the tape, the test tape, and uh, make the adjustments before the session because that was really the standard of, of right. care was you wanted to make sure that things were working. So you couldn't be, like, totally ignorant of it, but you, you didn't have to know how to fix it. Usually... That would that would require somebody coming in outside from the studio to do the actual repair work. So I was I had that that background as well. Yes. When I first met you, you were you were part of I think the company you were I think it was your own personal company it was Multimusica, and now it's Daystorm. Is that correct? Correct. So is that was Multimusica and now Daystorm is that basically the same? same thing or is it just you changed directions how did that work out multimusica ended up being at the early dawn of dvd music instruction those kinds of things we were looking at developing software titles for musical instruction and and what we were looking at was the kind of thing that the internet ended up becoming but it was the idea of having video, audio, and uh, interactive uh, text and things like that on, on a DVD, which sounds kind of mundane now, but it was very cutting edge at the time. This was well, the early 90s. But I switched the name to Daystorm because that's actually my publishing company name that I've had since 1970. So okay. we just put everything under the heading of Daystorm Music and the mastering company's name is Daystorm Music as well. So everything is a little easier by just saying everything is under the name Daystorm Music. It's either Daystorm Music, the publishing company, Daystorm Music Studios, Daystorm Music, 
whatever. <laughs> so for the listeners out there, why don't we kind of bring it into today and kind of explain all the things that you do under uh, the Daystorm name. So obviously producing, do, you do mixing, um, and you're also doing PR for some of the artists that you're working with, correct? Multidisciplinary. Uh, and the reason that th- that became relatively, well, I won't say easy, but it became second nature to me is because ever since I was in the business, it was everything that I had to do. It was like, this is in the days of do it yourself wasn't even like people just didn't do this stuff themselves. But in the seventies, I ran my own record label, Vera Records that started at Arco. So I had an understanding of everything that went into the manufacturing process, what had to happen. Um, I watched some of these artists get placed on TV and radio. I watched them get newspaper support. So I ended up doing that for my releases as well and and worked with PR companies and watched what they did. So I, I brought all that knowledge into what I do today with some of the artists that I work with. I will work on campaigns for certain artists that I feel like I can really make a difference in the way that the media will accept what they've put out. And it's not for every project, but certain projects I would be able to do that kind of PR work for primarily with the production and record production is, is more global of a, a discipline where you're assembling the whole thing or maybe coming up with ideas for arrangements, uh, certain musicians, adding parts. Mixing is kind of taking the tracks, right, that that somebody's already recorded and coming up with the finished final mix. Mastering is the finishing icing on the cake. And the promotion side is what do you, what do, you do after? And so it's kind of all-inclusive, complete project from start to finish and output. And you know just as well as I do that that this whole landscape is completely changing since COVID. Luckily for me, I haven't really had a downturn because some of the musicians that I work with, Peggy James, Jack Spann, have have used this time over the last year to just really barrel into working on finishing projects. <laughs> because what are you going to do? You can't play out. There's lots of limits on doing anything. So if you can pour that energy and that creativity into finishing something, it might give you the, the opportunity that you've always needed, which is uninterrupted time. So if an artist listening to the, to this interview might be interested in contacting you, what kind of things are you looking for in an artist to work with? I mean, obviously you have certain criteria for an artist to work with you. You know, I'm I'm luckily in in that uh, stage of my career that I don't I don't have to fill my calendar to make ends meet. So I'm looking for things that I can be passionate about working on, something I can make a difference in. And the stuff that motivates me is anything that's unique and original and creative. And and you know, I know that that's a subjective thing. So what might seem unique and creative and and really brilliant to me is not going to be the same thing that moves somebody else's meter, right? But it would be, and I'm not going to get genre specific because 
I work on the more traditional genres that I've always worked on, rock, blues. I work on jazz. I've worked on classical and uh, acoustic, uh, singer-songwriter stuff. Look, if you came to me with uh, To Pimp a Butterfly, there's no way that I, would, I wouldn't be working on something like that. If someone feels like they're in that wheelhouse of yours, where are you located as in online? What is like your website or where, where can they contact you? Yeah, they, the best place to get a hold of me is on Facebook. And it's just uh, my Gary Tannen page or my Daystorm music page. So, yeah, the Facebook is the way to get a hold of me. Or you can get in touch with me always on, uh, it's all one word, Gary Tannen, G-A-R-Y-T-A-N-I-N, at gmail.com When we first started this conversation you said you wanted to cover something but i can't remember exactly what what that was there's a company that we've started with a partner of mine jason huffer called mega making entertainment great again we're looking to put together a consortium of other like-minded professionals 
to forward the idea of the importance of maintaining the classic values that have been there in recorded music and making that an educational uh, imperative, uh, the importance of music education, which you're in, the value of that in, in general, and, and we have research to support the brain development and so on. When, when you're in a society that says, who cares about spending all that time learning a musical instrument? I've got a plug-in for it, or I can make loops that do it. There's a lot that's lost without the education that goes behind learning how that's done. You know, the effect of that education goes with you for the rest of your life. So the value of musical education, the concepts and values that traditional artists who are all unfortunately in that stage of their lives that we're hearing more and more of them are dying, we would look to create masterclass seminars and hear how they did it. What a, what a phenomenal opportunity to learn from the mouth of the person who's been there recording those great records, the engineers, the artists themselves, and talk about how things were done and even open question answer. So we're looking at developing that idea and we're actually talking to partners right now in trying to come up with a way that that would make sense on a national scale. So it's about caring about that legacy and finding a way to carry it forward with some funding from partners that have a, a value in carrying that forward. Anybody that's looking at making money out of any aspect of this entertainment business would do well in educating new generations on the importance of all these things and the value of having that education, because if we don't make it a value add to normal everyday living, then you can't blame people for not realizing it's a value add. It's like the chicken or the egg. If we don't keep re-educating new generations who then realize the value of it because you've taught them, then you can't blame them for not realizing the value. And if we leave it only up to the people who fund these artistic kinds of things, well, we all know where that goes. It's bottom line. We don't really need that art class anymore. We need to teach them how to become a programmer. You can make more money. We don't need uh, music education. We don't need physical education. So the blame isn't on the people that are making those choices based on finances. The blame is on we're not making a good enough pitch for why it's important. And that's kind of what Mega's purpose is to find ways to do. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. I guess the only question I have on that then is, you know, obviously you say you're still building that up. Do you have like a first, like a person, like you want to be the first person to be a part of this or are you still in that um, discovery mode? Easily we could say there was a list, a short list of persons of interest and of course, you could say the Eric Clapton's of the world, the the, the Eric Burdens of the world, the the lead singer, the Animals. Expand that list to being, uh, you know, producers and and engineers separately from the artists, and make them all available in a master class. And you could rotate that master class in different locales, 
just depending on when somebody was going to be there. Now, this is pre-pandemic thinking, right? So the idea would be that they're touring in a certain area. You know the people, the promoter that's responsible for getting their gig. Maybe you do an adjunct in a university the day before where you have a master class. You also have maybe even a private area of front row seating for people who attended that master class to be able to have a meet and greet with the artist and, and actually watch the performance. This All this stuff builds on that passion because you're integrating with the greats. And then that passion, not only is it exciting, but it's, it's addictive. We've been talking, uh, hopefully, to set up a relationship to accomplish that. But again, you can see how, how that made a lot of sense pre-pandemic because people were actually playing large venues. We'd have to retool the ideas. But certainly, you know, the master class idea in, in a university makes great sense. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to cover before we end the interview? talking about the great article that was placed in the Shepherd Express, which is basically why we're doing this interview in the first place, is there's an article uh, on producers of Milwaukee. Why do you even need a producer anymore? And that was the question that was presented. And uh, Dave Lurson and Blaine Schultz, uh, who did the article, it was a great job interviewing Mike Hoffman, Jeff Hamilton, Shane Olivo, and... Uh, Paul Knievers and myself getting our take on why anybody should bother working with a producer when you can do it all in the box. It really does center this whole discussion that we've had today. It, it's classic values. Why, why do you even need to work with somebody else when you've got the artificial intelligence in a box telling you how to do it? <laughs> you got to make the case on why it's important to have other people to work with. Right. So I wanted to... to again, commend the Shepherd Express for doing that because it points a spotlight on the fact that we do have an industry that's kind of maintained itself through all the ups and downs in the locality of Milwaukee with producers and engineers that have done lots of great work over, you know, decades. That's very encouraging to me. And I'm, I, I was fortunate to be included in that group and, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I read the article. It was, it was done very well. I actually had Blaine on a couple of weeks ago, too, on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on here. I know we covered a lot, but I know there's a lot more that we can talk about, so definitely going to have to have you back on again. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Zach, and uh, anytime. Another great interview there with Gary Tannen of Daystorm Music. If you're interested, there is a donation button on the website. Donations help with getting the name out there or go to buymeacoffee.com slash Wisconsin Music Podcast. I'd like to thank Nate Wyckoff for creating the music for the Wisconsin Music Podcast and to Dean Bundy for our great voiceover in the beginning and intro. Thanks to Jacob at CW Hip Hop for syndicating our podcast every Monday at 4 p.m. at CWHipHop.com. Also, ZTF Studio Recording and Mixing Services, specializing in singles, demos, EPs, and LP projects for the last 20 years in southeastern Wisconsin, doing jazz, rock, funk, country, indie, and more. You can contact ZTF Studio at www.ztfstudio.com or ztfstudio at gmail.com.
And you say you don't Strip away my will And take my soul This going up and down Is just so hard to take One of these days, baby I'm sure I'm gonna break this going Someday it's gotta stop I don't believe that I can take it For another day So with these words I tell you And I gotta say I'm giving you all the time I'm gonna spend 